I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready how much I just love our church. I just love it. I love, I never feel um, stressed about what I'm going to wear. I never feel stressed about, you know, some, sometimes you're going places and it's like you're going to somebody's house and you have to like, you maybe feel a little anxious about it, a little nervous about it, a little bit like, what am I going to wear? What's it going to be like? And then you have the friends that you show up in your yoga pants and you just walk right to their fridge and open the door. That's what this church feels like to me. Like, you're my yoga pants friends. Like, I love that we can all, that it's just a common place that we can all gather together. I hope that you feel that way. That's what we want this place to be, a place that you can just come as you are. You don't ever have to be fancy. Uh, You don't have to have it all together. We're just a group of people that want to love each other and love Jesus. So we're so glad that you're with us. We are wrapping up a series today called The Altar. For the last uh, three weeks, Jeff has been preaching about this idea of altars. And so as we finish the series today, I'm excited to get to share a little bit. Altars are special places, right? Special places. Many of you, if you were married, you walked to the front of a church and you stood at an altar. And you made a commitment. You made a vow. Altars are significant places where something happens. Altars are sacred places. They're holy places. It's, it's a moment where heaven and earth kind of come together and meet. And you have a significant time that, that something special occurs there. Now, I personally am big on moments. I love um, like having moments with my family. I love creating moments with my family. I love acknowledging moments. My family would say that I'm really, really good at creating awkward moments <laughs> because we might be just having a normal conversation and all of a sudden I'll stop and go, I just want to remember this. I just want to remember this moment that we're having this conversation and they'll go, Mom, you just always have to make things weird. Why do you always have to make things weird? But I love, anybody else do this? Am I the only one? Thank you for, thank you. It's all the moms. Yes. Oh, I know. Stacy does. We even have moments like on our way to the gym. Let's have a moment. So I love moments. I love, you know, when you're going through something, you're experiencing something in your day or you're somewhere with your family or something significant happens. Just even like Jeff talking about us paying off that loan. Like, I'm going to remember this moment because something, there's something about our memories, right? Our memories are made up of those moments where we stop and just, we acknowledge what's happening. We just pay attention and we're like, wait a minute, this is something important. I want to remember this. I want to, when I'm looking back at my time with my family, when I'm looking back at the history of this church, when I'm looking back at at the moments in my marriage, I want to remember this moment. I want to remember that there was something special about what happened. And when we're talking about altars, to me, that is one of those things about altars are moments. They're moments Um, When I think through my memories, and I think of moments that change the trajectory of my life, many of them were around an altar. Um, Maybe they were in the front of a church where I was praying and I felt God speak something to me. I remember the moment I was at camp when I felt like God was saying, I want you to go into the ministry and to be a pastor. I remember that moment. I, I can tell you what the part of the carpet, actually, every time I go back up to that camp, I like to go stand on that part of the carpet. Because that's my moment. I remember that moment. There was an altar where I pledged my faithfulness to Jeff when I said, okay, I'm in this for the long haul. And there are moments I've had to remember, I am in this for the long haul. But it was at an altar that I made that pledge. It was at an altar where I had my children dedicated to the Lord. And I stood there and I said, I commit to teaching them the ways of God. God, I'm giving them back to you. Those are significant moments in my life. And there were many altars that have happened on the carpet of my house. They weren't in a church. They weren't around anybody else. But they were moments where I just stopped 
and got down on my knees and said, you know what, I've been trying to figure this out myself, but once again, I come and I lay this before you, and I need you to change my heart. I need you to change this circumstance. I need you to do something in this situation where I've brought something before the Lord, and he's given me specific direction or insight. Altars are important to our walk of faith. And Jeff has done such a great job sharing for the last three weeks about three different kinds of altars. The first he talked about was an altar of commitment. He talked about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where he said to the people, stop wavering in your faith. If you're going to follow God, follow God. If you're not, then not. But stop this in-between wavering where some days you are in and some days you're not. Stop wavering in your faith. And he talked about committing ourselves to the one true God, of saying, I'm all in for what you had for me. An altar of commitment. That's an important altar that we make. And many, some of, uh, maybe many of you can remember the moment when you said, you know what? I'm in this thing. I'm making an altar and I'm saying, God, I'm committed. I am inviting you into my life. Then the second week, he talked about an altar of sacrifice. And he told the story of Abraham and Isaac. When God asked Abraham to lay down the most important thing to him, and said, are you willing to give me everything? Are you willing to give me the thing most precious to you? I find the altar of sacrifice where I wrestle, where I wrestle with God. Because that's really easy to sing in a song, everything and nothing less. But when it comes to laying down the things most precious to us, it's a lot easier to just kind of hold back a little bit. But God wants us to be fully committed. And then altar of sacrifice is when that wrestling takes place and when you stop. And at the end of it, you say, no matter what, I trust you, and there is nothing that I will keep back from you. And last week, he shared about an altar of remembrance. And he told the story about the Israelites crossing into the promised land, and God commanded them to go pick up 12 stones and to place them in a pile and to build an altar. And he said, someday your children are going to ask you what that means. And you can tell them the story of how God delivered you. And how important it is for us to build those altars of remembrance so that we can look back and speak of those things. And when I was growing up, my mom had this picture hanging in our house. And I always would kind of be like, this picture is weird. I don't know. My mom, you know, it was the 80s and our house was like peach and brass and everything. And then there was this like 1970s um, macrame painting with yarn and everything. And I was always like, I don't know what's going on with that thing. And finally, I was old enough to ask her one day, Mom, what is up with this paint? What is this picture that is always hanging in our house that doesn't match anything? And she said, well, that's, that's very special to me. So my dad had cancer before I was born. And she said, that's what I would do in the waiting room while your dad was having his treatments. I would sit and I sewed that. I, I, I did the, cr the cross stitch on that. And it hangs in our house as a reminder of God's faithfulness. Forty years later, here he sits, being ornery as ever. But here he sits. And there's, I know, it's amazing. And, you know, that's, every time I read that story, I'm like, that's exactly what happened in our house. One day, her children said to her, what does that mean? And she told me the story of God's faithfulness in our family's life. And that's why we build altars of remembrance, because it reminds us of the faithfulness of God. So Jeff has shared those three. I'm going to wrap up today by looking at three more altars that we see represented in Scripture. Now, I see the I irony in this that Jeff took three weeks to do three and I'm going to do three today. But I'm sure none of you are shocked that I have three times the amount of words as Jeff Kerr. So 
I promise we'll get through it fast. And there are going to be three stories in Scripture. So if you have your Bible, grab them, because I would love it if you could turn to those places in Scripture. I love getting into the actual pages of the Bible and looking at where they are. So if you have a Bible, grab it. There's Bibles on the ends of each of your pews if you'd want to follow along. But we're going to talk about three last altars today. And the first one is this, building an altar of worship. And we're going to start all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you can turn. It's right in the front, the very first book there. Genesis chapter 6. And this is the story of Noah and the great flood. Now, whenever you study scripture, anytime there's something called the law of the first mention, every time you see something and it's the first time it's mentioned in scripture, it's something significant. So let's say you're studying something and you're like, huh, I'm interested in about the temple. Well, go back in scripture and find the first time that it's mentioned. And there's something significant there. And this is the first time we see mention of an altar. And it is in Genesis chapter 6 that we see the first time that an altar is built. And we're going to start in verse 9 through 13. And this is the story of Noah. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at that time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. And we know this story. I was laughing. I was reading this again this week, and I was like, this is the story we tell our preschoolers. It is kind of, the rainbow is nice, but the rest of the story is awful. God destroys the entire world. He sends a flood and everything and everyone is destroyed except for Noah and his family and two animals of every kind. So can you imagine being Noah? Can you imagine being in that ark, watching the entire of humanity being wiped out? I mean, everyone is gone except for your family. Except for your people, you're in that boat. I can imagine there's a whole lot of terror. I can imagine there was a whole lot of not really understanding what is going on. But as we follow along in the story, we see that the waters recede and the ark rests on dry land. And let's pick it up down in Genesis chapter 8. And this is where we find Noah built an ark, an altar. 8 chapter, or verses 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. And he said to himself, God said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. And even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. I love that the very first thing that Noah does when he leaves the ark is he builds an altar and he bows and he worships and he sacrifices to God. Before they scoped out the land, before they built a house, before they built shelter, before they they did anything else, they stopped and they did something significant to honor God. I imagine in that moment, they had a very keen sense of how big and how powerful God was after watching him completely destroy the entire world. 
And so it was a reasonable response to get off that ship, bow their knee, and say, you are God. You are sovereign. You are big. So I imagine there was a moment of the fear of God that they wanted to acknowledge his bigness and his greatness. But I can also imagine that in the moment there was this unbelievable sense of gratitude. Unbelievable sense that God had spared their family, had spared their lives, that God had been merciful to them. And it is so true with us when we have an accurate sense of how big God is, how small we are, and how kindly he has dealt with us. Our reasonable response is to acknowledge him and worship him and praise him. And what I really, really love about this story is God's response to their act of worship. We see in verse 21, it said, The Lord was pleased that when he built that altar, he sacrificed the animals. It says that the aroma was pleasing to God. God was pleased. And in that moment, he made a vow. That act of worship moved the heart of God to make a promise to all of humanity for all kind. God said, I will never again destroy the earth. Even though men are bent towards evil, I will promise you this will never happen again. God was moved by Moses' response. The heart of worship is the acknowledgement that God is more powerful than anything else. It's us declaring his greatness and sovereignty, followed by speaking our gratefulness for his great care of us and his merciful heart towards us. So you and I need to be constantly building altars of worship. I would venture to say that this should be a part of our everyday routine. Before anything else happens, before we get about our day, before we start working, before we start all those things, getting up building an altar of worship and acknowledging, you know what, God, today you are God. You are bigger than anything. You are more powerful than anything. And I acknowledge your great care for me and for my family. This scripture shows us how this type of attitude not only pleases God, but it moves him to act on our behalf. You know, when when my kids, when I see that they've got a right attitude about something, that moves me, right? Even if they've done something wrong, and all the teenagers are like, "Mm, really? Even when they've done something wrong, if they say, hey, hey, you were late for curfew. When their response is like, well, I wasn't really that late, or they have an excuse or something, we're going to go a couple more rounds. But when their response is, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, I'll do better next time. Not only, that just enacts something inside of me of like, okay, they get it. They get it. They understand. They're, they're respecting me. They're honoring me. They're, they're acknowledging my authority in their life. And so I think in that moment when, when Noah got off the ark, fell on his knees, worshiped God, that there was a moment when God was like, oh, he gets it. He gets it. He's acknowledging my mercy of him. He's acknowledging that I am God and I have power. And God is moved by that. I think God just says, oh, they're getting it. There's a right spirit and a right attitude when we bow our knee in worship. So I want to challenge you to consistently build an altar of worship, an acknowledgement of who God is, and a grateful heart for all he's done. So that's number one, an altar of worship. Number two is an altar of repentance, an altar of repentance that we see in Scripture. Now I want you to turn a little bit further back in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, just a few more pages. And this is a story about King David. King David is one of my heroes in scripture. He wrote most of the Psalms, and he is amazing. But King David goes through a really rough time where he makes some really bad choices, and he messes up. 
chapter 11 of 2 Samuel tells us that David is home in Jerusalem, even though all of the armies are out fighting. Now, this was not customary. Usually when armies were out fighting, the king was with them, and he would lead them into battle. But for whatever reason, David did not go this time. And so he is... We're dealing with failure number one, with some kind of apathy or laziness or not being about the work that God has given him to do. So we see that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. So that's failure number one. Then it says that while he is there, while his troops are all off fighting battle, he sees a woman named Bathsheba and he sees her bathing and he summons her to him and he sleeps with her. And Bathsheba is married to someone else. Huge failure number two by King David. And many times we find that when we are dealing with being lazy and apathetic and not about the things that we are going, should be doing, we find ourselves getting into a whole lot of trouble that we shouldn't be. And so we find that he made a dumb decision because he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. Then he gets word Bathsheba is pregnant. So failure number three is he calls for her husband Uriah, has him sent to the front line, and killed. Really It's gone downhill from here, right? Failure number three, trying to cover up his mistakes by making more mistakes. Trying to move all the pieces to try and hide where he has failed. And finally, he is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And we see David respond so quickly, so quickly when confronted with his sin. Prophet Nathan comes to him and says, I know what you've been up to. And this is what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. In the next few chapters, we see David fully embrace a spirit of repentance. First, he confesses. He just comes clean. He just, he just says, I have sinned. I have royally screwed up. I messed up. A spirit of confession where he doesn't try and hide it. He just comes clean and admits it. And then we see David in chapter 12 that he, he is so repentant. He goes without food. He lays all night on the bare ground praying and weeping and asking God to remove the consequences of his sin. Because one of the consequences was the child that was born to him in Bathsheba. God said, that child is going to die. And he was on his face repenting. He had true remorse. He didn't eat. He just lied there. He, he fully embraced the consequences of his sin. He had true remorse. And when that child does die, we see, David, we see David go up to the temple, wash himself, go and kneel before the altar of God and worship him there. He accepted the consequences of his actions, and then he went and he worshiped God. And to me, the most important part of David's repentance was he pens one of the most beautiful psalms ever written. So if you turn to Psalm 51, I know I got you flipping and flopping a little bit, but if you turn to Psalm 51, we see the prayer that he writes after he has made this tragic mistake. And if you look at Psalm 51 at the beginning, before you even get to first verse, it gives a little background, and it says, a psalm of David regarding the time that Nathan the prophet came to him after um, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so he confessed, he repented, and then he wrote these beautiful words for us. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. 
Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again, for you have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. When I read of David's actions and the words that he writes admitting his failure and asking God to forgive him and change him, I think we have a great example of what it means to build an altar of repentance. To just come clean. To just confess and say, I have, I have really messed this up. I have made a mistake. I have screwed this up. And then he falls on his face and weeps for his sin and for the consequences that came from his actions. Then he goes to God and asks God to wash him clean, to restore a right spirit, and to give him a willingness to want to do the right thing next time. I think this is a beautiful example of what we can look like when we make mistakes. And notice I did not say if we make mistakes, when we make mistakes, because we all do, we all stumble. And I've been thinking so much about this, of how how little we actually stop and repent of things. We can tend to justify our actions or we compartmentalize and say, well, I'm, I'm not a really bad person. I mean, I just kind of screwed that one up a little bit and kind of justify things and kind of just brush things off as well. I just, you know, I kind of, I was a little angry when I spoke. I kind of didn't. But no, we see David, just this heart of repentance of totally coming clean. I am sinful. I messed this up. I did not honor you, God. I did not do this the way you wanted me to do it. Not justifying our actions, not trying to just explain it away, just falling on our faces and asking God to make us clean. I'm always amazed at our human capacity to justify our actions, right? But self-evaluation and confession is vital for a healthy relationship with God and with others. Self-evaluation of looking at it and go, yeah, I did not do that right. I messed that up. I did not handle that well. And confession and saying that and repeating it out loud is vital for healthy relationship with God and with others. And it doesn't just have to be big things. I think sometimes we read the story of David and we're like, well, yes, of course, he should fall on his face. I mean, that was a doozy, a whopper trifecta of, of making some big mistakes. But you know what? It can be little things. It can just start out that apathetic laziness of not following through, not honoring something God, you know God's told you to do, and you're just straight out not going to do it. Straight out said no. You know that God's told you to stop that thing or to go talk to that person or to forgive that person, and you just have put your foot down and said no. God says, no, come clean, repent, and say, God, I'm struggling with this, but I recognize that, that even though my relationship with that person has been hurt because of my disobedience. First of all, I'm being disobedient to you. Against you alone have I sinned. And there's something really important about recognizing that, that we have got 
to bring those things before God. Maybe it's dishonesty. Maybe it's just a little fudge of something. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's selfishness of just being so consumed with your world and everything that you are missing out. You are not attentive to what God would have you do. You're just consumed with your own thing. Or maybe it's idolatry of caring about more of the things of this earth than you are about the things of God. There's something powerful about bowing down in humility and admitting our failures and allowing the forgiveness of Jesus to wash us clean. There's something freeing in that. There's something really liberating in in letting the facade go down and say, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes all the time. Wash me clean, Lord, and make me right. So we have an altar of worship, an altar of repentance, and the last one I want to share today is an altar of petition. An altar of petition. So one more story, 2 Kings chapter 19. You just got to go a little further. And this is the story of Hezekiah. And this is probably one of my absolute favorite stories in Scripture. This is many, many years after King David's time. And Hezekiah was the king of Judah in a perilous time in their history. Because what was happening was the Assyrian Empire was coming and destroying all these smaller nations. They were conquering them. They were taking over them. And the the country of Judah was vulnerable at this time. And they knew, and they had set their sights. So the Assyrians had set their sights on Judah, and they were going to come after them. And so the king of Assyria at that time, King Sennacherib, sends a letter to Hezekiah. Now, I, th- I find this very nervy. Like, he's going, he's going around conquering things. So he sends a letter ahead to the king, basically saying, you're next. You're next. We're coming after you next. And this is the letter that he writes to King Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 10. It says this. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you with promise that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. And why should you be any different? Have the gods of other nations rescued them? Such nations as Gozan, Haran, Respa, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? My predecessors destroyed them all. What happened to the kings of Hamath and the king of Arpad? What happened to the kings of, I don't know what those three words are. I'm going to keep moving. After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. I love this. He went up to the Lord's temple and he spread it out. Before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord O Lord God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations, and they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. So now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power, and then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. So he gets this message basically saying, we have destroyed all these other countries. You're next. There's no, don't even think that your God is going to be able to save you from this. Writes him a letter and sends it ahead. I mean, I don't know why he wouldn't try and do it on surprise, but it sounds this guy was pretty confident in his ability to conquer them. 
And I love the idea that Hezekiah gets the letter, walks into the temple, and lays it out before the Lord. And I like to think maybe he lays down in front of it and says, God, nothing he's saying is untrue. They have conquered all these people. We, don't, we can't fight that. We don't have the manpower to fight that. We can't stop this army. They've destroyed all those other armies. But what we do have is the fact that you are the one true real God. And so I lay this out before you. There is nothing more that we can do. We can't fight it in our own strength. If you don't intervene for us, we're done for. And he lays it out before the Lord. So many times in my life, I have done this exact thing. And I have taken a bill <laughs> and laid it out. Or I've taken a, a health report. Or I have taken a journal entry of a problem that I don't know how to fix. And I have laid that piece of paper out before the Lord and laid down in front of it and said, God, you are my only hope. You are my only hope. There is nothing I can do. I cannot fight this. I am so outnumbered. I wouldn't even know where to begin. And yet there is something amazing about every time I have done that. I have seen God come through and intervene on my behalf. There's something powerful about laying something out and saying, there's no way I'm getting out of this unless you intervene. There's no way I'm getting out of this unless you come through. I think there's something really special about those kind of prayers. I think most of the time when, when stuff like that happens, we process it mentally and we get advice and we try and research solutions. But what if our first action would to be to build an altar of petition and lay that thing out before the Lord and ask him to do something miraculous, something bigger than we could ever figure out with our own mental capacity, something more than we can crunch the numbers and figure out. What if our first thing was to build an altar of petition and say, God, you have got to come through for us on this. And I know you can because you are the one true God and you are real. You want to know what happens? Oh, okay. Yes? Yes. Okay. Second Kings 19.35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. I mean, God took care of it. I mean, really took care of it. It wasn't even like, they fought in battle and God gave him the edge and after three, it was just literally like the army just died. Just died. Just woke up the next morning and they're all dead. So God came through in a way that could only show the power of God. And I promise you that those Assyrians went back and said, well, we might have been able to burn all the gods of those other countries, but this God is real. This God is real. And he's got these people's back. And I think God loves to show up that strong in our lives and in our homes if we simply will come and ask him to. So often we just want to figure it out ourselves. And we miss an opportunity for the glory of God to be seen in a miraculous way. So what if we purposed to build altars of petition regularly and watch God do what he does best, take care of his children in miraculous ways? So as we close today, I'm wondering what type of altar you need to build today. What type of altar is it that God is saying, yeah, today this is something I want you to grow in. Maybe it's one of the things Jeff talked about, an altar of commitment. Maybe you just haven't really made that dedication to Christ. You've, you're still wavering. 
you're not sure if you're all in or not. You're back and forth, and today God is saying, stop wavering back and forth, but decide today that you are going to serve Christ. Maybe it's an altar of sacrifice that you're still wrestling with that thing that God has asked you to lay down, and you're still holding on so tightly to it, and you don't want to give it up. And today you can come to an altar and you can wrestle and say, you know what, this is hard, but I'm giving it to you. Maybe it's an altar of remembrance that you just need to bow your knee and an altar of worship where you bow and say, God, you've been so good to us. And I don't know that, it's, that I have been expressing to you how grateful I am for how good you've been to us. Lord, my problems seem bigger, and I feel like I've just been rehashing all of the things that I feel like you're, you're failing us, and I need to stop and say, God has dealt bountifully with my family. And I'm going to stop and build an altar of worship and say thank you for all you've done for us. Maybe it's an altar of remembrance, of repentance, I'm sorry. Maybe there's just that little part of your heart that you know that there's something that you need to just confess an area that you have, you just messed up. And you're tired of trying to move all the chips around to try and hide it. And today you just need to come clean and say, God, I have sinned against you and you alone. So create in me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cleanse me from my sin and make me righteous before you. Or lastly today, maybe you need to build an altar of petition. Maybe you've just, you've gotten the report, you've got the letter, and there's nothing you can do, and you need a miracle. And today, we're gonna just have a moment, Jeff's gonna lead us in a song, and you can build an altar where you are. There's nothing sacred about the place. I've had plenty of altars in my car, <laughs> in my home. But to me, there is something significant about creating that moment. And so for you, maybe you just need to come and walk up here so that you create that moment that when that memory comes back, you say, I stood up, I walked down, and I, and I knelt down before you saying, I, don't, I need you. I need you in this area. So we're just going to have a moment that you can build an altar. Maybe you need to lay something out before God and say, I need a miracle in this situation. You are our only hope. If you don't come through, God, we, I don't know what we're going to do. I promise you, he loves those kind of prayers. He loves to come through for us. We just have to be willing to ask him. So let's bow our heads in prayer today. And then as Jeff begins to lead us, I just invite you to build an altar where you're at, or you can come to the front. You can stand, you can sit, you might want to kneel. We're just going to take a moment to build an altar. God, you alone are God over all things. There is no one like you. We fully recognize your great power and your great might. And right now we come before you. Whatever it is today that we need to create a moment and a memory where we just address, we take the time to address this situation going on in our hearts. Whatever it might be, we take the time to build an altar and to just come before you and deal with it. So Lord, I pray that right now you would give us the courage to be honest, the courage to listen, and the courage to trust you for something greater than we could ever imagine to be done in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.